Just, uh, just pray with me. Lord, as we've just sung, we, we just want to set our eyes upon you. We want to fix our gaze upon you and your, and your kingdom this morning. And I pray that you might actually give us a new way of seeing a new way of seeing and a new way of living in your kingdom. I ask you to help us. Help us to be undistracted. Help us to set our focus on you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's a title for you. I'm going to have a look at those two passages that were read uh, by Simon, 1 John chapter 2, and I'll take you there in a moment or two, and um, also 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And here's what I want to do this morning. I, I, I want to wrestle something with you. I want to, to wrestle how to live a biblical worldview. How to live a biblical worldview. Now, there's lots to get through. There's lots to unpack. And so I'm going to take you to my first heading, which is a biblical worldview definition. A worldview is a particular way that you see and understand the world. Andy Couch, in his book, Culture Making, said it this way. He said, worldviews are perpetual frameworks they are ways of seeing. And that is very, very helpful for us. It's a way of seeing. A worldview is a way of seeing. And so there are two main ways in which you can see the world. The first one is to see the world through the eyes of the world. You look at the world through the world, in other words. But a second way of seeing is to see the world through the through, through, through the eyes of God and His Word. So a biblical worldview is where you look at all of life through all of God's Word. When you believe the Bible is the true Word of God, when you believe it's inerrant, when you believe it's infallible, to use fancy theological words, when you believe the Bible is true from the top to the toe, then what you do is you look at the world through the lens of God's Word. And I want to ask you this morning, straight at the start, how do you look at the world? Because how you look at the world is the way you're going to live in the world, and I'll show you how that comes together. So do you look at the world through the world, or do you look at the world through the lens of God's Word? So there's a definition for you. Secondly, a biblical worldview change. What I mean by that is this. When you become a Christian, your worldview changes. In other words, you stop looking at the world through the eyes of the world and you start looking at it through the eyes of the Bible. There is a radical, fundamental shift in the way that you view the world. So take a look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 Here's Paul, he says, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Now here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that when I was an unconverted Jew, I looked at the world in a certain way. I looked at Christ in a certain way. But when I became a Christian, I suddenly looked at everything differently. I looked at the world differently. I looked at Christ differently. I looked at people differently. And so when you become a Christian, your world gets turned upside down. Or maybe it's better to say that your worldview gets turned the right side up. Which brings us to the third aspect of why is a biblical worldview so important? Why is the looking, the perspective, the seeing of things through the Bible, why is that so important? Why is it so significant? Let me give you at least four reasons. Number one, a worldview, the way we see the world, is the driving force of our lives. Our, our identity and the way that we live in the world is shaped by our worldview, the way we see things. Secondly, a biblical worldview provides the framework for all our ethical and moral thinking. Whether that is gender, whether that is sexuality, no matter what it is, our worldview absolutely impacts, provides that framework for our thinking. Thirdly, a biblical worldview shapes the way we view history. As Christians, we believe that history is his story. We believe that God has worked and He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So as we look at history, we see God's story. And our biblical worldview is shaped by the unchanging character of God in history. And then fourthly, our biblical worldview offers meaning and purpose for all aspects of life. And as you are about to see this morning, your worldview, the way that you see the world, and particularly through the eyes of Scripture, impacts every single decision you make, whether you realize it or not. So there's our start. We've got a definition. We've had this change that happens when we become Christians We've got a little taste of the significance of a worldview. But let me add, fourthly, a little bit of a caution. Caution. When it comes to shaping our worldview, it's very easy, Christians, to become legalistic. Or, and, as we shape a worldview, we start to become very judgmental about other Christians. In other words, the way we start to see the world, we start to think that this is the only way you can see it. In other words, all Christians are going to see every aspect exactly in the same way. And then we use our worldview to beat one another up. I want you to listen to some statements. Okay? This will reflect a fairly legalistic and a judgmental worldview. By Christians. Every Christian should send their kids to Christian schools. Every Christian parent should homeschool. Some of you are going, nah. 
every Christian should only vote for this particular political party. No Christian should take the vaccine. No Christian should go into a business partnership with a non-Christian. No Christian should ever go to war. Christian parents should not allow their children to watch Disney. All those statements reflect a particular worldview, a way of viewing things through the lens of Scripture. But what happens is they become a set of rules and regulations which we then judge other Christians. Now please hear me this morning. As you develop and mature in your biblical worldview, you are going to make many life-changing, crucial decisions. But a biblical worldview does not necessarily mean it leads every Christian to look at everything exactly in the same way. However, having said that, there are some non-negotiables. There are some core. There are some elements of a worldview that that if these are not part of it, then you can't actually claim that you have a Christian worldview. So, uh, I don't know if I've got it on here. Let me just check. No, I haven't. I'll come back to that. There's only one biblical lens through which you can view marriage and sexuality. In other words, you cannot claim a biblical worldview and embrace homosexuality, embrace same-sex marriage, embrace sex before marriage. You can't have a biblical worldview that says all roads lead to the same God. As we just read earlier, Nicene Creed, we sang it, you cannot have a biblical worldview that denies some of the very fundamental core basics of the Christian faith. If you claim to have a biblical worldview, but you deny the Trinity, you deny the existence of hell, you deny the resurrection of all people, you deny the, re- uh, the, the judgment of the living and the dead, then you don't have a biblical worldview. You don't have a Christian worldview. So as we grapple with this this morning, a biblical worldview, it's not a simple thing. It's actually quite complex. But maybe a better word is to say that a biblical worldview is nuanced. And as we grapple with it, our, our, we have to grow in our biblical worldview. And there has to be a growing in, in discernment. So what I want to do this morning is I want to give you two principles of a biblical worldview I want to help you see how they work out in our Christian lives. And it's going to be challenging, I promise. Here's the first principle. A biblical worldview hates the world. A biblical worldview hates the world. Now, I don't know if this will shock you, but God is love, right? God is love, and you'll all quote for me 1 John chapter 4, verse 8b. But if God is love, it also then means that there are things that God hates. If you love, then you, then you hate. And so a biblical worldview hates anything that, that goes against the unchanging word of God from a God who hates anything sinful and evil. Now just in case you're not sure if God hates anything, let me show you these words. In Proverbs 6, there are six things the Lord hates. There are seven that are detestable to him. Seven meaning lots. He hates haughty eyes. 
hates prideful eyes. He hates a lying tongue. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. God hates a heart that devises wicked schemes. God hates feet that are quick to rush into evil. God hates a false witness who pours out lies. God hates a person who stirs up conflict in the community. There are things that God hates, right? How about this one in uh, Amos 5.21? I hate, it can't be much clearer, can it? It's God speaking. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Him forbid God would ever say to us here this morning at BBC that your assembly is a stench to me. God hates certain things, doesn't he? So take your passage, if you want to go there with me, 1 John chapter 2, 15. Let me just read the verses again and just see this crystallized and unpacked a little. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, haughty eyes, comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. We could write, if we just go back to verse, if we went back to sort of 15 for a moment, we could write verse 15 like this, do not love the world, but rather hate it. Don't love it, hate it. A Christian and a Christian worldview hates the world. But hang on a second, you're probably going, didn't the same John also write John 3.16, for God so? Love the world. We, didn't we just sing it at the beginning of the service for God so loved the world and we were all getting uh, wonderfully excited there? Well, John did write that and we did sing that, but there are three worlds in the Bible. There are three worlds and this is not science fiction. Let me tell you the three worlds. Here's the first one. There is the physical world. There is the physical created world which Psalm 19 says declares the glory of God day after day. That's the physical created world. Secondly, there is the world of humanity. That's the world that John 3.16 is talking about. Put it like this. For God so loved the world of humans. For God so loved people that He gave His one and only Son. There's the second world. And the third world is the evil world system, which is what 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 is going on about. Do not love this world system. Do not love the world structure. Or put it this way, do not love the evil system of the world. You do not love the worldly system because the worldly system is based on what? It's based on the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the lust of of the pride of life. God does not love the world system. He hates it. And because He hates it, did you pick it up in verse 17? Let's just go back there for a moment. What's God going to do? The world and its desires pass away. In other words, God is going to destroy the evil world system. So let me put it to you like this. A Christian worldview celebrates and enjoys the created world which reflects the glory of God. A Christian worldview deeply loves people in their sinful mess and brokenness. But a Christian worldview 
hates the world evil system of pride and self-gratification. Let me give you another couple of reasons why God hates the world system. Because the world system is anti-God. The world system is anti-Christ. The world system is the domain of the evil one where good is called evil and evil is often called good. Maybe I could put it this way to you. A biblical worldview simply shuns evil. That's what a biblical worldview does. It shuns evil. It's a strong word, isn't it? Let me show it to you. In the conversation between the Lord and Satan in Job chapter 2, verse 3, uh, the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God and does what? Shuns evil. Same thing in Proverbs 3, verse 7. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And then in Romans 12, verse 9, love must be sincere. So if you love, you hate, right? So if love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to that which is good. So here's my question. First part. Christian, does your worldview shun evil? Do you shun evil? Do you know what God hates? And therefore, do you hate what God hates? And do you love what He loves? Or perhaps if you start to think about things, maybe you're someone, even a Christian, that is starting to look at the world and call things that are evil, you're starting to call them good. Does your worldview shun evil? Let me take you to my second principle, which I'm going to pull out from the Scriptures for you. And a worldview, a biblical one, separates from the world. If you hate the world, you don't isolate from the world, you separate. You come apart from. You don't isolate. There's a big difference. If you've got your Bible, have a look at verse 17 in that passage. 2 Corinthians 6, Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Now you'll know that this passage has got a very famous words in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked. Now before we get there and we'll unpack that, we'll want to put this passage into context. So the context of the passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 to 13. Listen to them again. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not holding our affection from you, but you are holding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. So here's the context. False teachers have infiltrated the church at Corinth and they are trying to steal people's hearts away from the apostles. Trying to steal people away from Paul and away from the apostles. In doing so, in stealing people away from the apostles, they're trying to steal people away from, from, from the gospel. And the way that they're doing it is they, they, they are, they're, they're perpetuating a false 
worldview. You might say it's a false biblical worldview. So if you backed up into the passage, here's, here's the worldview, here's the biblical worldview of the Apostle Paul. For we live by faith, not by sight. So here's what the false teachers were doing. They were coming in and flipping that around and saying, we live by sight and not by faith alone. So as these false teachers came in, they, they, were, they, they were saying that you need to, you need to take pride and, and in, in things like Jewish circumcision. You need to, to take pride in what you, can, what you can see, whether it's Jewish circumcision or something else. You take pride in things that you are doing instead of what Christ has done. It was a worldview that was focused on physical appearances. It was about worldly displays of power. The, the, the false teachers were peddling a, a, worldly, a, a worldly worldview under the guise of the Bible. See, a biblical worldview is one that denies itself and exalts Christ. A biblical worldview is one that does that, that, that looks at the unseen, not the seen. A biblical worldview takes delight in the power of the gospel to both save and change human lives. So in this context, here's what you've got to see. When Paul says, do not be unequally yoked, or do not be yoked together with unbelievers, what he is saying is this. You need to fundamentally unhinge yourself from a false world view. Separate yourself from, from those false teachers that are coming in and bringing things that are not part of the Bible, not part of the gospel. A false worldview has a false gospel at the core. So when it says do not be yoked or, or unequally yoked or do not be yoked together with unbelievers, it's really saying come apart, separate yourself in the sense of shun a false gospel. Keep that away from you. Stay away from it. Stand on the gospel. And I want to pour out my heart to you this morning. There are so many people claiming to be Christian, claiming to have a biblical worldview, claiming to see the world through the lens of Scripture, claiming to have the Bible as their authority, but so many that, 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 that deny the existence of hell, they deny the substitutionary death of Jesus at the cross, they deny the Trinity, and they deny certain moral ethics in the Bible. And when I say that to you, my brothers and sisters, I'm not talking about the cults. I'm talking about people inside the church. I'm talking about pastors in churches. I'm talking about professing Christians who are working for Christian organizations. This may shock you. Last year, in um, 2022, there was a, a survey done, and it was called the State of Theology Survey. 
It was released. It was done over a number of years, and it was released by Ligonier Ministries, which was associated with R.C. Sproul. In this particular survey, and the results were staggering, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of professing evangelical Christians, not cults, evangelical Christians were interviewed, and they were asked to respond to a number of different statements. Let me give you four of the results. I'm going to blow your hair back. One. 56% of, of, of the evangelical Christians that were surveyed, they, they affirmed this statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56%. And most of those evangelical Christians are sitting in churches. Over 56% of people basically said that Jesus is not the only way to the Father. Right? 73% agreed with this statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of people, evangelical, deny the Trinity. Deny the deity of Christ. Deny the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. 60% agreed with the statement that the Holy, Spirit is a force, the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. 60%. And then 57% agreed with the statement, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. In other words, people simply are not depraved by nature. They're not born dead in sin, Ephesians 2 verse 1. This grieves me to tell you this. At the end of last year, I sat with a pastor who's now an ex-pastor, but he was a pastor for I don't know how, how many years, and uh, is, is sort of left the church and, and is actually working for a Christian organization. And this is what he said to me. This was over coffee. I do not believe the Bible teaches that the Father punished Jesus for my sins. The same ex-pastor said to me, I no longer believe in hell. A loving God will not send people to hell and either people will go to heaven, all people will go to heaven, or go out of existence, or I might be inclined to believe that God will save everyone. We need to hear these words from Jude 4, don't we? We need to be warned that certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are not Christians. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. It was shortly after that conversation, I had another, and he was a, a genuine, genuine Christian, came, came to see me. We were having a chat, it's not, not, not part of this church, and uh, we, we, we were catching up. And he was actually quite distressed because what he said to me, he, he works for a very big Christian organization of, of which I'm very familiar with. And this is what he said to me. He said to me that the two CEOs of that Christian organization, the two chief executive officers of that organization were openly non-Christian. Openly 
So, can I, can I make a plea to you this morning? Can I, make, can I make a plea to you, BBC? And can I make a plea to those of you here that are from other churches? And it's the same plea that the Apostle Paul made to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15. Take a look. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Are you holding on to the gospel? To not be yoked together with unbelievers primarily is not to be yoked to a false gospel. A false worldview that has a false gospel. It, it, is to, it is to stand on the gospel. It is to hold the gospel. It's to receive the gospel. It's to believe the gospel. It's to contend for the gospel. It's to fight for the gospel. It's to live the gospel. It's to proclaim the gospel. Stand on it. Hold on it. Don't let it go. It was on Saturday night that I wrote to that ex-pastor with whom I had coffee. And I wrote to him with every ounce of love that I had in my heart to call him back to the gospel. As someone that was walking away, falling from grace, becoming apostate to deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign Lord. Dear God, I hope he hears. Are you separated unto the gospel? Are you, are you standing on it and, and not, listen, standing on it so that you don't allow this gospel to be perverted? Not perverted in your life, not perverted in your church, not perverted in your home, not perverted in the school, the Christian school if you go to one, and not to be perverted in the Christian organization if you either are affiliated to one or are part of one or work for one. Is that you? We are called to contend for the gospel, aren't we? For the faith once for all delivered to the to the saints. Jude 3. Now, I'm going to take you a little deeper. And it's going to get quite practical. Uh, I want to pull up this screen. And if you could just sort of get me out of the way there. Because I want you to leave it up there for a moment. If you've got your Bible, have a look at 2 Corinthians 6. We've got this separation, right? I, I, I separate. I don't isolate and become sort of some Christian hermit or Christian isolation is I, I separate unto the gospel, stand on it, but there are a number of principles that as I, as I hold to a biblical worldview, which is a gospel worldview, as I separate from the world and hate the world, there are some principles here that help us as we navigate our space, navigate our living, navigate our living in 
the world. And you'll see them there. So if you've got your Bible, just follow with me. Verse 14. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Verse 14. What, what fellowship is there between light and darkness? Verse 15. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Another name for the devil. Verse 15, what commonality is there between a, a believer and an unbeliever? And then, what, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idolatry? What Paul is saying is this. As you live a life of separation, these are the principles by which you need to make the decisions you need to make. So let me put it like this. As you make decisions to connect to something, as you make decisions to join to something, watch something, date someone, marry someone, be involved with someone, have fellowship with someone, whatever those decisions you make, you need to look at it through these categories. In other words, am I connecting to, am I joining to, am I partnering with, am I fellowshipping with, am I uniting with righteousness, light, Christ, faith, the temple of God, the Holy Spirit, or are my decisions actually uh, wicked, associating with, connecting to, partnering with, wickedness, darkness, the devil stuff, uh, un unbelieving, uh, lack of faith, Things by sight and even idolatry. Now, here's the thing. This is going to sound maybe a little bit weird, but Christians often just don't think. And I include myself in this with you right at the very top. So often, we just blunder along thinking we're doing the right thing, Doing Christ's thing, not well. Meanwhile, the thing that we're doing is we're just doing what is right in our own eyes, which is actually doing exactly what the world does. We're not stopping and saying, Is my association, is my connection, is my fellowship, is my uniting, is my partnering, are my decisions reflecting godly biblical worldview principles, or are they actually reflecting those things that are connected to the world, to the very thing that God says we're going to hate? It's so easy to think that you're operating on a biblical worldview when you're just doing what is right in your own eyes. All right, we're going to, be, we're going to get practical, hey? Okay? So, here's what's going to come up on the screen. Big screen, please, uh, Ian. Make it big screen and just leave it there for a moment. This is not every category. Uh, that, that, that there is. There's a few others, and I've, I've left off a particularly obvious one. But here's some, some categories of our lives. Schooling, politics, friendships, work, business, partnerships, marital partners, food, drink, clothing, finances, assets, technology, environment, arts, recreation, retirement, vocation, church. We could add sexuality on there, etc., etc., etc. Here's what we've got to do. If you're going to look at these things through the lens of Scripture, as I look at those categories in my life, 
and I make decisions into those spaces, do my decisions reflect righteousness or wickedness? Do they associate with light or darkness? Do they associate with Christ or the devil? Do they associate with the things unseen or the things seen? Do they associate with the Holy Spirit or the spirit of the evil one? Do they associate with God's people or does it associate with the people of this world? Those are the type of wrestling questions that I've got to ask as I, as I, as I, as I look at the various facets of our lives. Now, I'm going to take one. I'm going to illustrate it for you because it's the live one of the day. It's always live, no matter where it is. And then I'm going to try and illustrate some of them by way of some statements. So let's take the live issue of Christians dating non-Christians. It's often said the Bible does not say that a Christian cannot date a non-Christian. True or false? True. It's true. It does not say that. It does not directly say that. However, let's, let's go back to that picture. Please make the picture big, Ian, on the previous one. There we go. No, not that one. Right, let's go back there. In, in dating a non-Christian, here's the questions. Am I, as a Christian, joining and potentially joining myself to an unbeliever? And you just answer yes or no as you go through this. In this context of Christian dating, non-Christian, what, what does a righteous, saved person have in common with an unrighteous, unsaved person? What does someone who has the light of Christ in them have in common who is now currently under the authority of the devil? What does someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit have in common with someone who is filled with the world? If I choose to date a non-Christian, am I exhibiting faith in, 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 in the good promises of God and His boundaries, or am I exhibiting a non-faith, an unbelief in something that I can see? Now ask yourself the question, should a Christian date a non-Christian? Let me apply this to some of those other categories like this. Do, does this friendship draw me closer to Christ or pull me away from Christ? In my particular business partnership, am I being tempted and led in order to operate my, my business on the lines of the world or on the integrity of the Word of God. When I look at the, the, the clothes that I wear and the way that I wear clothes, does that reflect someone that is associated with the kingdom of God or with the kingdom of darkness? Does my drinking reflect godly principles of self-control or does it border on the evil of tipsy and drunkenness? Does my eating reflect gluttony or does it reflect a thankful gratefulness? 
Does my desire for money and my desire for things, does it reflect greed and discontent or a contented thankfulness? The particular technology that I'm using and how much I'm using it, is it drawing me to Christ or away from Christ? When I'm watching TV or whatever I watch on TV, whatever I watch on YouTube or whatever the case may be, is that fueling my love for Christ or is it fueling the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh? Back to church. Is the church that I go to, is it standing on the uncompromising gospel of God or is it on the shaky ground of pragmatic compromises? Do I use my retirement to serve myself or do I use my retirement to serve others in the church? I suppose if you were looking for a verse that sort of pulled it all together sort of in one go, it would be this one, wouldn't it? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, I guess that's fairly all-encompassing. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. See, there's the biblical worldview. Did you see it? Can you honestly say that what you are doing brings glory to Christ? What you are doing and the way that you're doing it. Honestly, You know when you say something like, well, I just don't feel like doing it? Is that, is, do you understand that comment? I just don't feel like it. You realize that that's not exactly doing something to the glory of God, is it? That's wanting to do what is right in your own eyes. A worldly worldview does what is right in your own eyes a biblical worldview seeks to do what is right in God's eyes. And so I want you to ponder this, Christian, as we start to close up. Here's the, here's the exhortation. Christian, three weeks into 2023, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the Word of God. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let me close with this as we go towards our final song and I'll ask the music team to start making their way up. Have a look at this. Music team, please come up. 2 Corinthians 6.18 and in that same passage, God says, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. So let me just tweak one little thing here with this worldview when you consider this worldview and looking through the lens of Scripture to everything, who are you? Who are you? Christian, who are you? If you're a Christian, you're a son or daughter of the, of the living Father. That's who you are. 
And if, if, if we're sons and daughters of the Father, then verse 17, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. If you're anything like me, and you are, you need to perhaps take this morning and really take a little step back. Have a look at your worldview. Look at how you're operating. And ask yourself, am I operating on the principles of God's Word? Or actually, do I claim to be a Christian and I'm just actually just doing what I think is right in my own eyes. And would you come before the Lord and continue to work this out, wrestle this out, and we do it together as a body of Christ. Let's stand and sing our last song together.